0: <inaudible> <inaudible> as
1: i begin my own spiritual journey i want to hear from those who have taken this path before me this podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Taala along that journey. Before moving to New Jersey, I looked into the Muslim community here and the Center for Islamic Life at Rutgers University. Long story short, my Javedana in Chicago knew of Aslam, the chaplain at Silru, through Qayser's father. Qayser had also recently given a khutbah at my old local masjid, Islamic Foundation. I reached out to Imam Kaiser before the school year, and even though he was just returning from Hajj, he responded right away. Suru, which is literally a house, has been a cozy and welcoming home away from home this past year. Last winter, I went on a blessed trip with Imam Kaiser and other Rutgers students on my first Umrah. This year, Silro is planning a trip that I'm also hoping to go on, to Jerusalem. It's supposed to be the first of its kind, organized for Muslim university students. In this episode, Imam Khosr talks about his spiritual journey, the path to chaplaincy, and using vacations to squeeze in Islamic classes in amazing locales around the world.
0: So,
2: um, I grew up mainly in Chicago, I moved to Chicago when I was eight years old, Um, and before then I actually lived in Saudi Arabia for five years, Um, and then before then I uh, lived in uh, India. Well, so that math doesn't really add up, but I was born in India, lived there for maybe a year and a half to two years, moved to Saudi Arabia, and then moved to uh, um, the United States, specifically Illinois. I spent a little bit of time in Maryland, maybe five or six months, and then I moved to Chicago. And uh, one thing I can just remember about kind of my spiritual path or my spiritual journey, specifically starting with um, the, my earliest memories of like religion um, was feeling a very big difference between how my family used to practice in Saudi Arabia versus how they practiced when we eventually moved to Chicago. Um, and uh, the major difference was actually we practiced quite a bit more when we moved to the United States when we were in saudi of course everyone went to prayer and whenever you could you went to Salah, i remember Jum'ah, but i don't remember actually understanding any of it i think part of that had to do with because i was in saudi arabia and everything was in arabic um and the other part does have to do with there is an uh a more personalized or a more subjective experience to um spirituality in america versus um uh, in a muslim country and i think i was starting to feel that from uh from then i felt like i before I would practice, I would pray, I would make dua. I actually have a really funny story of when I was uh, maybe four or five years old and I um, made dua at the Kaaba, and uh, like almost like a miraculous thing happened. Um, so I do remember that, but in terms of my actual relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I don't think it really started to develop in a in a very palpable way until I moved and started forming a community within the United States here. And early on, that's exactly what it was. It started with the family where we lived in a community in which they weren't that many Muslims so my earliest memories are praying Maghrib together and my mother opening up her hadith book um, and specifically she would read from this book called Adab Zindagi which was written by Mawlana Yusuf Islahi who I've, I've met many times and every day would go over another kind of section um, but it started from the family and it very quickly turned into a communal um, relationship um, uh, like my the most impactful things to my uh, development would have been my friends Uh, when I started attending Sunday school and eventually when I started uh, attending a youth group that I would find that a lot of my uh, highs and lows in terms of my iman were very much linked to how often I had seen this uh, religious community as it was growing.
1: You talked about this moment of making the latakava as a four or five year old and something Mm -hmm. kind of miraculous happened what happened?
2: So um, when I was four I lived in Saudi Arabia and um, my parents always described me as a very rambunctious uh, child. Um, and I now have a three-year-old, so I think I know what I'm ta- what they're talking about because she's crazy and drives me up the wall in a good way, alhamdulillah. But one thing I remember particularly is we would go to Umrah once a month. And um, this was back before all the hotels and everything really existed uh, around uh, around the Haram. Some of my earliest memories are actually running up to the kaaba Um, and just like hanging out there, putting my forehead on the Kaaba, feeling the marble on the floor. And I even remember once particularly that this woman picked me up and made me kiss the black stone. Um, so like some of my fondest and earliest memories are actually of the, of the Haram, um, in that time. But one that sticks out more than anything else is we were going on the way to, uh, to the Haram. We lived in Jeddah. And Jeddah is about an hour, an hour and 10 minute drive, uh, uh, from Mecca. And while we're going, um, I had seen a water gun that my cousin had, which was just awesome. It was like a dolphin water gun. And for a four year old, that's like the big four, maybe five year old. It's the best thing to have. It looked like a dolphin. You pressed it and like water came out. It was so cool. And, uh, I have been begging my parents for this for like a week, but we hadn't really left the house. So we're now driving over to, to Mecca and on the way there's a store called Watani and in this store, I know that's where the water gun is. And so we're driving and, uh, and it's like a little bit before the hood. So probably at like 10, 11 a.m. or something. And I'm like, look, the store is there. We're going to go get it. And my mom goes, no, um, we'll get it on the way back. We normally returned way after Isha because we pray as many prayers, of course, as we could, um, in, in, in Mecca in the Haram. So that was her intention. And this story is kind of one of those stories where like your parents tell you a lot of it and you just have bits and pieces of the memory. So I'm like, as a child, I'm like, okay, that's fine. We'll get it on the way back. Um, the whole day passes. Uh, and one of the things I just remember distinctly is I went up, put my face on the Ka'bah and I made the most sincere dua or the first dua I ever remember making. I was like, ya Allah, get me that water gun. And I was specific to the blue dolphin with the orange trigger. And uh, then on our way back, it's like 1 a.m. And we would normally go on a Thursday night. So we're heading back now. It's 1 a.m. My mother claims that as soon as we were passing the store, I magically woke up and I pointed towards the store. I'm like, look, it's there. And to to which she she says, it's closed. And I, I look over and say, the lights are on and my she points over to she looks over at my dad He's like the lights are on um so we pull up to the, the the Watani and uh as as we're going in I'm super excited and everything so I go to the store was open it's like 1am and I get the gun the the dolphin water gun that I wanted to and I'm like super happy I'm going back my dad apparently asked the store owner he's just like it's 1am what are you guys open for and he goes um Tomorrow's Juma. The store should probably look good for Juma, So I wanted to come in and just clean up a little bit more. And as we're kind of going back in, I've heard my dad like say the story many times. He's like, that's not what happened. Allah put it into that person's heart to open it because a four-year-old made a dua at the haram for a water gun and he got his water gun. <laughs> so for me, I was like, well, dua was accepted. Dua of a child is ex- accepted. So yeah, that was kind of my my moment of recognizing du'a works, and it's amongst my earliest memories. So, in my mind, when I think about what is a sincere du'a, honestly, like I this I've ran with this since then is um, a sincere du'a is like how a child wants a toy. That's how we need to be in our du'as um, in order for them to be accepted.
1: I love that. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about that that youth group and like um, like. What did that give you as like mm-hmm.
2: a young Muslim? Um, so one of the things I would say um, I've always really benefited from is the perspective of others. So that's one of the things that the youth group really provided me. One would be just because on a cultural level, um, I had I had not found people who I could truly empathize with. Um, up until I joined a youth group and specifically the one I was blessed to be a part of was Young Muslims until I found that within my community. I was actually too young um, to attend it because it was supposed to be from the ages of 13 to 25 and I was a nine-year-old. So they made exceptions for me and eventually uh, I got kicked out but then I, I joined back in when I was old enough. Um, But that is one of the main things I was looking for is actually someone to bounce ideas off of. And I think that that ends up being a block to a lot of people's spirituality is when they don't have any person to test it against or anyone to have an equal conversation with that there's room for teachers. And I could say my peers were amongst the best teachers I ever had. But Part of that finding those teachers actually finding teachers who I could just talk to freely. And I really feel like that was something that was holding my spirituality back. And once I was able to find it, just having conversations, I remember like we'd have some really dumb ones of like, hey, what's gender going to be like? And I know that's a, it can get into a very academic discussion, but I'm talking as, as a 10 year old having that discussion. And it actually gave you something to look forward to. Like I had a positive experience. It wasn't just a set of rules and regulations. It was like, man, it felt so good when I woke up for fajr. And at that point, like waking up for fajr was like once a week type thing or maybe once a month type thing. Um, as, as in my own family, uh, as we got older, the, uh, the mandates started becoming less and less and you had to find your own motivation. And my friends and my, my, my social peer group um, ended up giving me that, that form of like social pressure and also that social med- uh, motivation.
1: Can you talk a bit about, for some people that don't know what Young Muslims is, they do like a wide variety of work. Um.
2: Yeah. So Young Muslims is a national organization, though sometimes people don't experience it as a national organization of uh, um, of young people who qu- quite literally do try to do two things one is create an environment and it's okay to be muslim and practice islam and to kind of be imperfect about their faith and developing into their faith in in these local communities um and the other is for those that end up actually wanting to do something with their faith or wanting to pursue some sort of activism with their faith providing that leadership development so that they have a organized method that they're going to be continuing on from so those are the two like goals of young muslims and the way it works is um i believe there's like 40 five or 50 chapters now across the country. Um, and they're in, in most of the major cities across the, uh, the United States, but it's it's groups of young people who take their faith seriously and want to create an environment. It's usually once a week um, uh, within a local masjid. Some places do it out of like a like a local library, but it's once a week that they come together in order to um, create an environment in which practicing Islam becomes practical. And on the other front is when they take that seriously enough to provide a leadership track in order for them to develop into activists that are very much grounded uh, by their Muslim identity.
1: So where did your journey go from there? Um, I'm assuming that kind of went into your university years, but...
2: It did. It did. So one thing I can say is... um, so when I was very young, I was I was fortunate enough to have good company where we could develop um, uh, into our Muslim identities on our own terms, and I think that it was very important. But I can take this question to two different directions. One is with the natural progression of that. What did that look like? And then the other was is actually much more of like a personal journey. Um, and I'll start with the personal journey. As I was getting older, of course, as someone as as individuals start developing their ideas and I uh, of and passions, I started realizing that I really, really enjoyed the what I call the empirical or the hard sciences. Um, so this led to like what my undergrad major eventually became, which was uh, um, uh, a major in uh, biology with a focus in physics or a double major in physics and biology, however you want to say it, with a minor in chemistry. Um, and I added a minor in art just to be fun um but it was, it was a very hard sciences type of major and this started much before of course i chose it in college i started finding myself in high school also gearing towards this and what this led to was because i had developed language on this front so much more than uh um uh, other fronts it started warping my worldview in which everything was about productivity and i and i find myself still having to wrestle with that a little bit today but everything was about not just like personal productivity but empirical productivity where like things were only good if they could be materialistically proven as good and as i started getting older um, i started applying that to even how i would measure a successful person versus a non-successful person a successful society versus a non-successful society it was the successful society was the one that progressed technologically more was the one that produced more um, and that had a uh, um, a natural in my opinion ceiling, and that's that's what t- actually intend, that w- caused almost a faith crisis for me um, in late high school, early college, and that was that I started really looking into it, and I was like i don't see a purpose of just continuous productivity in the, the empirical sense of if we do become technologically better does technology actually make people happy um the if if something is the, the most sci- scientific discovery not that i would say uh, contrary to it that we should that we should be a society or we should be people who are against scientific progress but does it actually bring about happiness or fulfillment of life um and that started causing me to have doubts in terms of like that my whole world view was shook and then i started going back into hmm. maybe actually this thing that i practice on the weekends religion. Um, This thing I do because I didn't necessarily, I believed in it, but I did it mainly because my parents did it, mainly because my society did it, Um, but not because I actually wanted to I started looking back into it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this was it the whole time. This was supposed to be what makes someone have a fulfilled life that actually fulfill that actually um, gets into the core of like what it means to be a human being and how a human being actually feels whole. So it was done on a number of le- uh, different levels. One was I had a biology quote unquote crisis because I was like, well, if everything is made to just progress to the next levels following the ideas of natural selection, I'm like, I don't like that world what I mean by that is like I started trying to be like how do we justify morality or, or altruism and that, that caused me to be like well no those, those are weaknesses and I'm like I don't like the world that that leads to um, because what we're talking about is like terrible social Darwinism and um, In which you just let the weak die, you let those with disabilities die, and even you let those that aren't intelligent just die because we want to get to this progressed state. And I thought that was just a terrible society to be a part of. And I started thinking, and the eventual conclusion, without making the long story short, was that, no, 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 our education, our morals come from a different source. And that actually leads to a lot of where my worldview comes from is that, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the point of wahi is actually to take us away from some of these natural conclusions that our biology might point us toward. That Allah intervenes and Allah actually gave Adam the first human civilization and edu- an education. Um, so that Adam doesn't just fall into this survival of the fittest type of mentality, the selfishness actually is able to bring him higher than that, bring him to a higher state of consciousness and a higher level of intelligence and morality. Um and that that suddenly gave me like a purpose and like subhanallah, that's what Wahi is here to do. And that kind of set me off and like, I need to understand how this now works. And that led me to eventually um, change my major from, <laughs> um, from well, not necessarily change my major because I still graduated my undergrad <laughs> with physics and biology. Um, but eventually when I started pursuing my master's, I did it in Islamic studies because I really had to understand now this other style of, of um, human productivity in terms of spiritual productivity. Um, how has how it shaped civilization? And I need to learn more about it because this side of my brain was was way too developed. Um, So that that led me to eventually pursue an education in this. And of course, also personally to uh, pursue this side a little bit more, um, because I had developed, I could describe literally like the refraction of of, of sunlight before it reaches into your eyeballs um, with so many different theorems, but I couldn't tell you what motivated a human being. And uh, that's why I I realized I was completely imbalanced. And in order to bring some of that balance back, um, I I jumped into studying theology and I jumped into studying um, uh, ibadah or or like how we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what our relationship really looks like. And I think that brought me that that balance that I was looking for. Uh,
1: So we'll definitely come back to your master's because that's important. But um, I just want to shift gears for a second to make sure we don't miss this. Um, But the two of us have talked about before um, how while you were in Chicago, you took classes. With Sheik Amin at Dar Al and can you just talk a little bit about him and, and his impact on you?
2: So I grew up in the Islamic Foundation School community, um, in Villa Park, and Sheik Amin, when I was much younger, used to give khutbas every now and then, and Sheik Amin, um, is a very interesting figure. Uh, in I remember I used to always like, who's this guy with the British accent? He just like, goes up there every now and then, but he was really intriguing, and I didn't really value him all that much up until like I was in probably the end of my high school, early undergrad career. remember um, a bunch of my friends started, like, the Sheikh Amin knows his stuff. So I would listen to his, specifically his tafsir series um, that he was going through. I remember what got me hooked was when he went through Surat al-Hujarat. Um, no, Surat al-Hujarat and Surat al-Kahf. I remember Kahf was probably the first one I listened to. And the way he spoke tafsir, and that's the word I will just use, is he, he would just come in, wouldn't have the mushaf open in front of him or anything. He'd just kind of sit there and be like, Today, we're going to talk about Surah Al-Kahf, and it starts with Alhamdulillah. And if you want to know Qur'an, you start with the first praise of Allah that's found in it. And like, he would just, he would drop these like general rules of how to interpret Qur'an. Like you and I would talk about like, I don't know, like how do you tell if a restaurant is good or not? Like, it's, it's like you just drop this and like that just got me completely hooked. And that's what every session with him really felt like. It, he didn't, it, I'm sure he did a ton of preparation beforehand. Actually, one of um, Sheikh Amin's students who, who ends up being one of my mentors, who'd be mad if I said his name, um, <laughs> uh, says that he learned from Sheikh Amin that the general rule is you prepare eight hours for every hour you present. Like that's, that's the rule that you pick up. So I'm sure he did a ton of preparation, but when he was with you, he was, he would literally speak Quran um, and it was just amazing. Like his, his words were like, he didn't, he didn't need to read out of a tafsir. Like he, it felt like someone was just writing one as, as you're there in that gathering. Um, so it it was, it was quite the experience and that's how it would be. I remember that what got me hooked was probably Surat al-Kahf. And his, his eventually went to sort of the, uh Hojarat, but it used to be like that that weekly thing. Sometimes on, I'd listen to it online after it was done and sometimes in person. Um and there weren't that many people there. There were like maybe ten. Um so it was quite the experience on the Rada. Um so just-
1: Switching back now, uh, did you start your master's right after your undergrad?
2: I took uh, one gap year um, and I, one of the things I say about that gap year is um, I think I learned more in that gap year. Um, even though it was a pause to my uh, education, it was a, 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 a huge, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but a huge boost to my learning. So I had to put my education on pause in order to boost my learning. Um, but I took a gap year in which I was the national coordinator of young Muslims I did a two-year term so in my senior year of my undergrad and then in my gap year and then uh, uh, I was interviewing at different um, uh, Islamic studies programs and eventually after that gap year, I went into uh, um, a Master's in Islamic studies at the Harvard seminary
1: Can you talk a little bit about your thesis? Sir?
2: Sure um, <laughs> Very early on in my uh, um, master's program, I had a professor who constantly would be asking me, what's your thesis going to be on? And um, I knew it in the back of my head, but I had like three or four other ideas that I wanted to, uh, to play around with. But I had been tasked by, uh, in young Muslims actually, to come up with a curriculum for that, the leadership of like, if, if they're going to be young leaders who are going to be inheriting actually all of these Muslim organizations um, and all of these massages all across the country, what education should they have? And that was a question that bothered me quite a bit. And I was like, you know what, might as well just turn this into my thesis. Um, so my thesis is on uh, um, Islamic literacy for under Undergraduate Muslim Americans. It's what does the average um, uh, Muslim American growing up need to be to be literate in the Islamic sciences? Um, so that they could practice confidently, so they could talk about their faith with some level of, of uh, authenticity, um, and so that they could propagate it as a practice that they continue throughout their lives, and eventually when they start raising their families and communities as well, so, so that it, it, it's a little bit further than just what they need. Um, so that's what I eventually ended up doing my uh, master's thesis on, um, and it, it continues to evolve to this day, as I would say, my, as I use it in a very practical level, as when I'm a chaplain at Rutgers, or at chaplain at the previous institutions I used to be at, of how am I going to now teach Islam um, to young uh, undergrads and grad students.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I know you've studied uh, overseas for a bit. How does that fit into
2: all this? Um, So one of the things I I, I oftentimes tell young people who are um, contemplating jumping into the Islamic sciences is there's a lot of local resources there really are and it is a good idea to exhaust them Um, and most people never get to the point of exhausting them the amount of local Sri that we have where you can get almost a full on like Ivy League um, Islamic education exists right here with the United States so you don't need to travel. But I still recommend that they travel. Um, and the reason I say that is uh, yeah, it's traveling just expands your horizons. And I was very lucky that actually right out of high school... Um, I had an opportunity to go and study Arabic and Quran um, at uh, um, uh, in Egypt, in, in Cairo, and specifically at Marqas Fajr which is kind of like this international division of Azhar University in which students that didn't know Arabic would go through a couple of different schools and Marqas Fajr was one of them. So and uh, I had an opportunity to study uh, Arabic and then eventually tafsir with um, who at that time was a Dean of the Azhar University Sheikh um, uh, Ibrahim um, uh, so. I studied abroad the first time in Egypt, back when I was right out of high school. Um, I actually didn't attend my high school graduation. My mother is still mad at me to this day that she didn't get to walk my graduation. But I let her walk my undergrad, not let her. Alhamdulillah, I had her with me on my undergrad and my uh, um, master's uh, graduation. But uh, so... That was a out of high school. And then anytime I had a gap year, like I mentioned, I had like a little bit of time. I would go abroad and study somewhere. So when I had finished my undergrad, I went to Turkey, studied there for a few weeks. Um, when I had uh, January off in my master's program, I went to studying Oman for a little bit. Um, when I had a couple of weeks off, right as soon as I got married, I went to Jordan. I <laughs> studied in Jordan uh, for a little bit. Um, then I went to Istanbul University when a friend of mine had tickets just to go to Istanbul for two weeks. So we went um, and I studied there for a little bit. So that's how this has really ended up being, is anytime I get an opportunity to travel somewhere, I always enroll in a local universities classes. So it's been Sultan Qaboos University, Al-Amana Center in Oman, Istanbul University in Turkey, um, in Jordan, just with uh, with teachers who, who teach at Maqasid.
1: Okay. Well, that's definitely very unique like, yeah. to go to all these different places. Can and that's, you... a,
2: that's what I recommend is when you are there, use it as a learning opportunity. Because not all learning is the type of things that you get a degree for. Um, and to be honest, like those were super impactful, even though they were like sometimes a week or two weeks at a time, sometimes a month, sometimes a summer at a time. But they, you tend to pick up quite a lot in those type of intensive programs.
1: Can you just talk a bit about like what? the differences between the communities and the teachers and, like, just being there, what was the differences and what kind of stood out to you?
2: Hmm. Um, A lot of what what stood out, I don't know if it has as much to do with the location that I studied or the topic that I studied. Um, So one thing I can say is when I studied in Oman... I specifically went there for like an interfaith program that's offered through the RCA, the Reformed Church of America. Um, and through, But while we were there, we decided that we were going to study a little bit of fiqh as well. Um, but we, it was interesting because we were in Oman. Oman is a generally Ibadi population. It's a sect of Islam that is very, very specific to Oman. A little bit um, of uh, so, some spaces in, in Yemen and some spaces in North Africa. But it's a very small sect of Islam. But we studied Shafi fiqh there which, again, would be kind of odd. And that's because majority of the teachers that teach in, um, within Oman end up being a, a Shafi'i. But we studied in the desert. So we literally were in the Manah Desert, um, living there for two weeks. Um, and uh, we, we studied fiqh. And that was such a unique experience because, first, most of what we would have been distracted what, with was completely gone. Um, you saw the same group of people because there were maybe like 15 of us in total in that little village. Um. So you saw the same group of people, and you could just memorize like crazy. So that was a very amazing experience. And when you get the opportunity to study in nature like that, I would call them almost like Treats. retreats. Um, it, it has this unique experience of like it's memorable, it's short, but it builds a lot of discipline. Um, so that was really great with specifically there. When I was in Egypt, I mainly studied Arabic. Um, and Arabic, um, I benefited again from having, uh, four close friends of mine. Actually, one of them was my brother. Um, so three friends and my brother. Um, uh, all, we were all with, around the same age range, like 17 to 20 or so. Um, and, uh, we studied Arabic and studying Arabic and Quran had its unique kind of taste too, in which you're literally studying Arabic, which at many points ends up being like studying math because you're just sitting there and like memorizing charts. Well, that's not how most people study math, but memorizing charts, memorizing equations of how sentences are put together. Um, and, uh, it, it seems very repetitive, but we break up the repetition by studying tafsir. And like, hey, look, we learned this. Let's quickly do the Arab of these verses together. Um, and that has a very almost like intellectual component to it. Versus when we were studying things like fiqh, there wasn't as much of an intellectual um, uh, component to it. There tend to be a very practical aspect of how am I going to use this. But when you're studying something like Arabic, there's an intellectual type of growth. Um, and the reason I mentioned that is even though I was in Egypt, even though I was uh, uh, studying Quran and studying Arabic, that was amongst the most spiritually, uh, um, that like a, a moment that my spirituality deteriorated almost the most in my, in my life, even though I was studying Arabic. Um, but versus when I went and I studied, uh, when I was studied after I got married, um, I always had a partner that I could kind of bounce that information off from. And at that point, what we were studying was things like the ski at the nafs. Um, and those studies tended to be a lot more like reflective in nature. And, um, if anything, what I used to try to look after more was like, I need more of that intellectual stimulation because a lot of this is just spiritual. A lot of this is like very much focused on like me fixing myself, breaking myself down, rebuilding myself up. Um, so I would oftentimes like, the, that's what that would turn into. And there isn't, there is a degree of losing balance on that end as well. Um, so I would say like each of the places I've studied, uh, maybe there's the content, maybe it had something to do with the space, but it has a different flavor to it. Um, and it's only once I like reflected and like reabsorbed it all afterwards um, that I, I felt some sort of like progress at, at a holistic level rather than falling in on one extreme or the other.
1: You mentioned that while you were studying Arabic and Thessir in Egypt, you had a bit of a spiritual low. Um, is that normal for students of knowledge, and how did you get out of it?
2: Yeah, so um, when I was studying in Egypt, the first time I was studying, I was actually quite young. I was 17, and uh, I think that was the moment I realized how dependent my spirituality was to a community. And I thought that I'd be going, and I'm learning Arabic, I'm learning fiqh, I'm learning, uh, uh, going to Tafsir classes with um, an awesome teacher while we were down there. It was mainly with Sheikh Ibrahim Najem. Um, and I was definitely mentally engaged, but like salah didn't feel as uh, significant as it usually does. Uh, when I would do like just things like I've I didn't have the motivation to necessarily do it. Um, and I started realizing that uh, there are protective factors for spirituality and community ends up being a major part of that. And I was really lacking that. And that's something that people who get into serious study, they find themselves alone and it was just that realization type of moment that like no i need a community i need my like i used to attend youth groups um i used to uh go to functions with my family go to prayer with my family um and that really held me down um and and grounded me in terms of in or grounded isn't the proper word i think it elevated um uh my, my relationship with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that was lost, loss and i had to supplement that and the other thing i just have to mention is um uh this kind of relates to a, the, a moment in my life where I felt a huge spiritual high. Is um, when I was studying in Egypt, we didn't have too much time in nature. I was someone who grew up going to parks, going like t- taking hikes, these type of things. Um, and I really realized that uh, not doing that for even a couple, like two, two to four weeks on end, um, really took a toll in terms of like how much concentration I had in my salah. Or how much when i said a name of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that i truly appreciated it um and the reason i, I say I, I recognize that even more uh after i left egypt in my third year of my undergrad um i had an opportunity to do like a study abroad program in the bahamas where i was a, a rese- uh, one of the uh, the junior researchers um and particularly i was scuba diving maybe three two to three times a day collecting biodiversity data and the the species i was actually studying were queen parrotfish but without all the technical kind of jargon with marine protected zones, non-protected zones, measuring the difference between the algae contents and in the reefs, um, I basically just was uh, looking at uh, coral reefs for four or five hours of the day. And I would just sit there and be like, some walls. Well, like it would be bubbles so you wouldn't really be able to hear me. But it was like such an Iman high for me um, where I could just spend hours there. And even in the morning when you're waking up, I, we, didn't, uh, we actually didn't uh, step foot on land for like 16 days. We went to islands in order to collect other data. We have an awesome story about like um, almost getting my finger bitten off by an iguana. Um, but uh, we would do that type of stuff. But we were generally in, uh, in very non-inhabited areas. And even just watching the sunrise or spending time at sea, it was so spiritually rewarding. And I started realizing what my particular spiritual modalities are. um, And that's, I respond a lot to community and I respond a lot to like spending time in nature. Um, That those seem to be uh, elements that uh, really preserve my connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It kind of feels weird to say this, but even more than even like learning uh, um, in, in a formal setting of some sort.
1: And um, we had a few opportunities to study in nature, particularly in the desert. I um, you said that was really impactful because it forces you to have a certain level of discipline. Can you just expand on what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, um so this was specifically actually in o- Oman um in I forgot what year it was now, and all the years to blend together. but while I was doing my masters, I had an opportunity to study in Oman for a month. Um, and of course, you take up an opportunity to study anywhere that you've never been before. Um, that's just generally what I recommend people is don't let your education get in the way of your learning. Um, I had a break off, like one month off for school, and there's an opportunity to go study abroad. Take those opportunities, whether it gives you credit or it doesn't, it, it, it will help you. Um, so one particular part of the study through the Alemana Center was we spent a, a week in the Mana Desert. Um, and it it was literally, we were in the desert and you had the option to kind of take classes with and We were specifically studying, um, uh, Shafi'i Fiqh, um, but we spent time in the, in the desert. And one thing is it's just the desert. So there is something spiritual, just like the, like my previous experience of being in in the water. This is a water of, this is like an ocean of sand. Um, there's something just amazingly calming about that, 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 that seems to encourage like more self-reflection. Um, and tries to make you understand like your space in all of this. So that was already really cool. But I think with the desert what I realized specifically was the sensory deprivation that you uh, experience in terms of like everything you see around you and even like lack of like checking your phone all the time to see what's happening in the news and all that cause there was no internet access either. Um, allows you to really remember like people's faces one of the things I can still do is if you asked me to like draw um, my teacher's faces that uh, or the people I met because we only met like 10 people in that whole like two weeks or something and those are the only faces you saw, I'd be able to give you like details and um, I'll sketch it out much more than if you asked me to uh, like draw someone you met yesterday. Um, so that's one thing: is person to person interaction just seems so much more significant, um, and also anything we were studying, like our memories were significantly improved. I remember uh, some Quran that I had memorized; like that's not the, the the Quran that needs to be reviewed over and over again. It just it just stuck. Certain surahs just do that for certain people, depending on if they got them naturally or not. Anything we memorize in that moment it just sticks. Um, and particularly one of the other reasons I think that this was so significant was um, uh, the sleeping arrangements for those of us that wanted to, we didn't have to sleep in tents like others had like these like cabin looking tents that they could go into. Um, but then they offered for those of us that were feeling a little bit more brave um, that you could just sleep out in the night sky um in, in the desert and the desert gets quite cold so you'd get a bunch of sleeping bags and you'd kind of like pad yourself and be in like two or three at the same time in order to uh kind of combat the cold um but there are some cool aspects of that one is we would put lighter fluid all around wherever we were going to sleep and we'd light it um and the question is like why would you do that it's actually because scorpions hate the smell of lighter fluid so that's why you would do that to stay away from scorpions and snakes and things they wouldn't go around that area so the more you know. Um, so that's what we would do. But the other thing is we would literally fall asleep and there's, were hundreds of, we're about 150 to 200 miles away from like the closest thing that we would call even like a village. Um, so when you just look up at the sky, you would literally see stars, like millions and millions of stars. And you could just, I, I remember thinking to myself, like um, that, uh, who needs any entertainment? All we do is we keep looking at stars that keep winking back at us. Um, and you just keep staring at the stars and you'd fall asleep. And it reminded me of the ayah from Surah Al-Mulk in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says um, that, the, uh, that the stars, they've been put up in the sky as they, uh, they pelt the shayateen. And I remember even thinking like anyone who has an ego, that's what they need to do. When you go and you just stare at the wonders, the lights that Allah Subhanahu ta'ala has put there, it feels as if your inner shayateen are being pelted, that you're, they're just lowering themselves. Um, so you just stare at that and you just fall asleep. Um, and it was the most like fulfilling sleep ever, though when you'd wake up in the morning, you'd be super stiff because of how cold it was. Um, but it's still definitely worthwhile. So things like camping are really a part of our tradition that a lot of us just ignore. And I th- I think uh, spending some significant time in nature really like opens up these like doorways I would say um, uh, in terms of like our own personal growth and you realize how much of um, your just uh, existence your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa taala is very much linked to being appreciative of Allah's creation and again this won't be the same for everyone some people might not respond to this as well as others um, but there are many different avenues. to
1: these uh, trips. Did they influence your master's at all? like Or how?
2: Hmm. Probably quite <laughs> a bit. Um, well, one thing is I, I did a, a master's um, in Islamic studies at the Hartford Seminary, um, which ends up being a unique place because I had looked into a lot of different spaces um, uh, of where I would study. And one of my requirements, as strange as this is going to sound, is like I wanted to be able to pray behind my teachers. Um, and anyone who's ever tried to look for institutions to study Islamic studies in, specifically like master's programs, we will know that that becomes increasingly difficult um, uh, to do. So that was one of my requirements. And I I authentically felt like I learned my tradition, not just uh, studies about my tradition, but I learned my actual tradition within the program itself, though that wasn't the aim of a lot of the classes that I would be taking. Because a lot of the classes were much more historically based, much more sociology based. Um, like the sociology of religion or the effects that religion has had on a society rather than studying the actual religion itself. Um, but uh, so what the travels did is it provided a context for me. They were, I had classmates who had never traveled um, uh, to any place in the Muslim world. So what they studied was purely theoretical. Um, I think many times I was able to apply it onto the sociology. This was also being a part of a Muslim community. So when someone tells me, when I'm learning about the history of how fiqh was put together, I'm like, aha, so that's why they argue so much about where to put their arms. Uh, It suddenly became contextualized instead of just like looking at it as um, as, as an abstract science of some sort. Um, And uh, the other thing it, it allowed me to do is experience diversity rather than read about diversity. Um, though one of the amazing things about our tradition is that no matter where you go in the world, there will be a degree of, um, um, I don't want to call it uniformity, but uh, a degree of unity in how the faith is practiced. But there is a lot of diversity when it comes to the intellectual trends and the social effects of our, our, our um, uh, practices. And to be able to experience that firsthand um, really changes the first the interest I had in the subject because I think I would have gotten bored. Um, if I, if I couldn't see the practical effects and the, on the other end, um, the, the interest, but also it allows you to a, approach it with humility because you realize there's so much more you don't understand. You couldn't just read it off. as like, oh, I read it in the textbooks. I understand it. You're like, I read this in the textbook, but it still doesn't explain what I'm seeing. Um, so it allows you to approach the subject with a lot more humility.
1: And so, um, following, uh, your master's, did, did you kind of decide to go into chaplaincy right away or how did that decision come about?
2: I had actually, um, I did not, even though I knew Hartford Seminary before going in was known for chaplaincy, um, I'd never considered that I would take that route because when I was still considering Hartford Seminary, I was actually going on the PhD track um, where either I would use it as even partly through the program, jump into a PhD program or just uses it as a way to get myself proficient enough to pursue a PhD in Islamic studies. But as I was doing that, um, I had like almost this aha moment. Sometimes like kids talk about like medicine being that aha moment in which like they really loved biology, but here's the practical side of biology. How do they use it to actually help people ends up being like, medicine of some sort right um i kind of had that aha moment with chaplaincy um was it happened a couple of different times but i really understood as like this is when people study theology when they study um uh, religion in general but how does this help someone navigate through their life and i saw chaplains just doing that left and right Um, i specifically remembered i was visiting uh, a chaplain who i will not name Um, because I don't know if he wants to be named in this because I remember once sharing the story and then he told me not to share it Uh, at least his name Um, but I was visiting a chaplain at a university and what had taken place that time was again again, I was going because I had a bunch of academic questions because I was like I'm considering this thesis or this thesis what do you know about Abul Qalam Azad Um, because that's who I was going to do my thesis on and um, uh, as I was driving up to his uh, um, uh, university there was a car accident that had taken place with a student Um, uh, and the student was paralyzed and he said immediately like as I was on my way hey meet me at the hospital instead and we went to the hospital together and um, he was with this family and he was just kind of talking to them Um, and they kept asking him questions were really moments of grief and I saw him going from family member to family member and being able to provide this like authentic presence and this authentic just like support to them Um, And when they had questions, not answering their questions, but helping them understand their own questions a little bit more. And I was like, subhanAllah, this is what one of the major purposes of someone like being well versed in the tradition is in those moments, just providing that grounding. And I saw him just do that so well. And I was like, again, this is one of many moments that I was like, subhanAllah, that that seems like it would provide impact. Um, and that's I, I really thought that it 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 did a lot. Um, so that was one reason. Another reason was as I was just being the the skeptic in me of like, okay, if if I become if I end up doing a PhD and writing a book or talking about one specific subject or being really good at one specific subject, like what impact is that going to have? It does have an impact eventually. But what I saw from uh, uh, from Chaplain specifically, at like the university setting or the prison setting is um, they influence the way people experience their tradition now. Uh, in, a, in a very real sense there. Um, and I, I thought that was just such a uh, scary responsibility, but more than a scary responsibility, I thought that was a necessary responsibility. A lot of the work I was doing in my youth group, it um, was kind of just that is you were almost like the chaplain to this community. And when anyone specifically from YM asked me, like, why did you become a chaplain? And my answer is typically because I, I never grew out of being a neighborhood coordinator. And neighborhood coordinator was like the local uh, uh, leader for that year of like who ends up organizing the halakhas and all that type of stuff. I was, like, I kn- and they end up being chaplains for this community. And I was like, I never grew out of that. So I became a professional neighborhood coordinator. And that's why I became a chaplain. Um, but that's how it took. It went from like that intellectual route. Um, to just realizing the effects of it, um, to eventually just uh, the practicality of what was needed most. Um, And then on the other side, there was also, um, I wanted something that would keep me very grounded with activism within the community, but also would force me to continue um, uh, studying. And I found that chaplaincy allows you to do both you don't fall on or you can fall under the extreme but generally it, uh, you can't fall under the extreme of not being active with the community as unfortunately some academics tend to do um, and on the other front uh, you have to keep your vocabulary up to date um, or else you're going to be irrelevant to the community because you can be an activist and then just not focus on your intellect at all. Um, we're not focused on let's not use the term intellect but on on that vocational growth at all um and you become irrelevant to the community so this is all still like keep me on my toes and i can tell you one thing like you guys do that like crazy you're really good at keeping me on my toes which i'm super grateful for 100.
1: did you decide to go into um like hospital chaplaincy because of that one experience
2: um, I, I worked as a hospital chaplain for a year and a half, and I've done a couple of units of CPE or clinical pastoral education. I did it for a number of reasons. One is yes, that experience really did throw me into like, how does he have this sense of presence? Um, uh, so that was, uh, that, that was there, but I also intentionally did it because, um, I knew that I did it for two reasons. One is because I personally needed it. Um, and I wanted to experience it. And the second is, um, um, I know specifically, uh, uh, chaplaincy had a weird rap. I grew up in Chicago um and uh chicago has a lot of unique things associated with it but one of the things i can say is um uh of my peer group that was considering islamic studies or going abroad to study um uh, in in like a uh, in in like an azhar or a uae or some other um institution or medina um there was this understanding that like oh the chaplains they're like a weird bunch um and uh to an extent there was some truth to that um uh, uh to that conception i'm not going to call it a misconception but um because what they had experienced that they don't represent like the mainstream community. They're off doing their own thing. And they often use language, which is very different than what like the, like a Iqna or Isna speaking crowd would use. Um, so one of the things I wanted to make sure to do is experience as many aspects of chaplaincy as I could um, so that either I could confirm or uh, um, kind of debunk some of these uh, myths. Um, and that's, I, so I wanted to experience hospital chaplaincy. I wanted to experience prison chaplaincy. I wanted to experience acad- or campus chaplaincy and community chaplaincy um, and military chaplaincy as well. Though I never actually practiced as a military chaplain, I have a, a very good friends who are within the military chaplaincy. To see what the different flavors are is t- so that I can almost advocate for them or I could talk about the field with some degree of authenticity.
1: And how did you kind of transition into campus chaplaincy?
2: So very early on, amongst the first chaplains I interacted with were cap- uh, campus chaplains um, because they tend to be amongst the most visible um, uh, chaplains or at least at the point of uh, what I had just finished from was was college life. So that's why I had interacted with campus chaplains the most. Um, and uh, I knew that I that's the space I wanted to be in. Uh, one, because again, my activist roots kind of lead me back in that direction at all times. Um, and the other... Um, even after having experienced the different forms of chaplaincy, I find campus chaplaincy to be by far the most varied in, uh, in terms of what you have to do. You have to teach, you have to um, um, do gre- um, almost like uh, emergency uh, uh, pastoral care in terms of when situations kind of pop up. Um, you still interact with the greater community and you have to interact with local massages and local religious leaders. Um, so there was like a lot of, uh, volatility in terms of the experience, and I enjoyed that. When I had done prison, uh, I mean hospital chaplaincy. Um, again, it's super. It's it's super fulfilling in terms of you interact with people and some of their most uh, um, grief-stricken or some of, some of also their happiest moments in their life. Um, I remember people like, isn't it just tough? Like, no, sometimes I'd have to interact with a young father who just became a father and was feeling completely, completely lost. Um, so there are some like, super happy moments as well, or, like someone hears really good news and they don't know what to do with it because they're staying in the hospital much less than they thought they were. So, yeah, there were happy moments, but of course there was a lot of the uh, dark side as well. But it makes just emotionally so spent. Um, I find campus chaplaincy has the balance of like, you still have that emotional energy that it requires, but there's moments of like, no, I just get to sit here and teach for a while. Um, so things like our spirituality night where I get to lead a group of students who like for the first time in their life maybe at times have experienced like what they could truly feels like or like what uh, uh, an ayah of quran when it's understood can can do to their life so you get like that grounded uh, soft element as well um, rather than just like that high emotional intensity that's found at something like hospital chaplaincy all the time.
1: Um, I want to come back to spirituality I have a different question first. Um so I've heard often from other chaplains and other teachers that um every chaplain needs their own chaplain mm-hmm. um and uh you know as someone also that kind of has moved around all over the place um do you, um, do you have a mentor and is it kind of hard to maintain that relationship because you moved so much? <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, that the statement is super true. That every chaplain or every caregiver uh, needs their own caregivers. Um, I would say the first person who tends to bear the brunt of that burden is my wife. Um, if anyone asks, like, who's your primary chaplain? It's my wife, um, and that, that that just how it is, and I I don't know whether she um, signed up for it, Uh, but alhamdulillah she does a very good job at it. So I've had a consistent one since I've been married, (laughs) it's been her. Um, But in terms of, uh, on on the other front, the idea of actually having a professional chaplain, any time I've ever existed within a community, amongst the first things I do is actually seek out other uh, other chaplains or other uh, people who act as chaplains. Um, And my definition of chaplain is someone who can uh, walk with someone in a moment of transition. Um, whether that be an emotional transition, whether that be an academic transition, whether that be an intellectual transition, a physical transition, but who can who can walk with someone in that moment to provide some level of comfort and, and, and grounding. Um so uh I, I have the I've always kind of had other chaplains that I interact with, but also sometimes it's just a teacher. Um, who might not wear the hat of a chaplain, but like I, I have enough of a relationship, uh, that they end up becoming like my chaplain. Um, and, uh, it's, it's hard when you move around a lot, but I would say that's one of the things that our communities are, are pretty good at is when you want to seek out a teacher and if you're serious enough about it, you're generally able to find them. Um, and sometimes they don't want to be your teacher, when you kind of force them to take that role. Um and sometimes it's a give and take that uh, they think that they're te- you're teaching them, but in essence, you're actually you're actually learning from them. um but i've I've had to do that and uh, uh, in so far, the last couple of years I lived in Connecticut for a bit and I lived in New Jersey for a bit and in both of these spaces. In Connecticut I lucked out that I was actually an, a student enrolled at a, at a, at a university. Um, so I had even then though some people didn't find these mentors that they were looking for but I forced some of my teachers to become my mentors and it would be in sneaky ways sometimes. It would be like oh um, a bunch of students wanted to set up a poetry night with you and I forced a bunch of students to go and attend the one or two weeks of poetry night so it turned into a thing but eventually it was just like me and my teacher one on one so was like great got my chaplain um and at other times it would be attending a, a public class um uh one example i can give is in new jersey there's a couple of classes that teach like fail um and you attend the class and you just stick around and to like offer your teacher like hey you want to go to grab dinner or breakfast or lunch whenever it happens um and it turns into a beautiful relationship that way Um, And the other side is, of course, be a chaplain for people. And oftentimes, um, if they have the capacity to, uh, they will be the same for you. And again, this isn't something that's expected, of course, of like where you professionally work. But I found uh, one example I can give is Imam Zahid Sultan. He's at Princeton, not too far away from me. One of the things I love doing is just having conversations with him of, how how his semester was, what was really difficult. Um, and as I open up or as he opens up, I, I tend to find like, oh this is this is what I was really looking for. So I find people who are doing the same type of work as you and just kind of open up and it turns into like, okay, well, how are we going to maintain ourselves now? Um, and we end up fulfilling that, that responsibility for each other.
1: Um, can you just talk a little bit about Suru and um, kind of like what SIRU is all about, what your vision for it is?
0: Yeah,
2: so the Center for Islamic Life at Rutgers University is the center that I work at. Um, It's the uh, center that exists on campus to really provide, I would say, four main resources. Um, One is for, uh, it serves four main audiences, but uh, the main audience is uh, individual students. So as students are kind of navigating through their college careers, um, uh, providing a place in in which they can authentically experience their Muslim identity and develop it. Um, so that's providing one-on-one counseling if students are ever feeling lost if they're ever going through something their families are going through something they need some sort of guidance it's to provide that individual care Um, it exists to provide that care also to student organizations because student organizations are awesome and they fulfill a lot of cool niches within our community Um, but they need they need guidance at at times it's not fair to expect a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds to um, represent the faith of Islam on their campus and develop their own leadership and develop their own ways of providing emotional and spiritual support to each other as they navigate an Islamophobic environment like that's just that's just not fair so providing um, uh, guidance to their leadership and also having a space in which if there are things that student organizations don't know or they want like um, professional presence to help with um, we provide that. And some of that is like creating an opportunity for students to go to Umrah Like it's really hard for students to organize that so we take that on we're doing a Jerusalem trip this next year. So that's that second group of student organizations and collective students themselves not just individuals but collectively students. Third is staff and faculty um, to provide resources on Islam and Muslims for them and not just have them rely on students who are going through the process um, because I've been there like I remember I was studying for my MCAT in my undergrad and I got a call from the uh, the chaplain saying oh we're having an event on uh, um, on religions we have a a rabbi who's coming in we have a priest who's coming in and can you speak on this panel and i'm like I'm 19, I'm studying for my MCAT, it's, it's, it's in three weeks, but sure, I'll go sit down and talk about Islam. Uh, it was, what was it on? It was it was on like some complex issue of, of, of like uh, uh, Muslim, uh, uh, like religious meat purity or something. I'm um, just like, it, it was a weird responsibility to have and students oftentimes find themselves in that. Um, so we take the burden off of them by being the representatives to staff and faculty. And also when staff and faculty att- will have needs as well, we have close to 30 35, 36 uh, uh, Muslim uh, faculty that we've identified on this campus. And so we kind of birthed the Muslim faculty forum of staff and faculty can come together and have a space in which they can kind of develop uh, what does it mean to be a Muslim faculty at Rutgers University? And do we want to do anything with that? they can navigate around it itself but still is here to kind of provide that space and then the last group is to the greater community talking about the issues that um uh muslims on a campus face uh so that they understand it a bit more and also on the other end making sure that the muslims on campus understand that there's a life outside of this campus and once they graduate where um, once they leave campus, they need to be able to figure out how to navigate that so that they don't just lose their Muslim identity as soon as they leave. So providing that liaison shift between the two. So that's like the four major roles that Sulu fulfills. Um, and uh, um, uh, what we're trying to do is we started off with as a team of one. Now we're like a team of five people, alhamdulillah. Um, but it's to make sure that uh, Islam is empower like not as long, Muslims are empowered on this campus Muslims are proud of their identity on this campus and those that choose to open the door have the ability to open the door I've had many uh, students actually come by and it's kind of a weird thing for them to say but they're like you know I'm never gonna actually step foot into silver but I'm glad it's there in case I wanted to and I'm like it becomes a weird thing to say but those are also the students that when they're actually going through something emotionally difficult um, or something that just like tears them apart they tend to actually walk through the door um, because they saw us at an orientation event, because they walked by College Avenue and were about to go to Panera, but they're like, you know, instead I'm just going to go and turn into Silru. Um, so that's that's what we're here to do.
1: I find it really unique, because um, I'm not sure how many people know this, but you... you teach a class specifically for the student groups right and um and i'm sure that like feeds directly out of your master's as well but um, can you just talk about that a bit
2: yeah so one of the things that happened very early on is uh we started doing weekly classes um through the center for islamic life and all of our weekly classes were offered because students demanded them Um, because we're very very cognizant with our programming because uh to not impede on the uh space or the, I guess, jurisdiction, if that's a word to use here, um, of the student organizations. We want the student organizations to flourish. We're not here to replace them. We're here to actually uh, provide them all the support they need to flourish. Um, So we were very light on the programming, but students had requested very early on that, like, well, spirituality isn't really talked about in a systematic way. There is no academic development of someone semester to semester when they're here. Um, And one of the classes that they asked for was leadership development. They're like, okay, Muslim organizations, you're literally thrust into them, like into a leadership position, and you have no training. And sometimes people are expecting things of us when we never got trained on how to do it. So what we started offering is uh, Muslim leadership training classes. And what that is, is Muslims working in a group. What is common vocabulary they need to know? So things like, what does taking shura mean? What are the etiquettes of taking shura? What is this thing of establishing the deen, al deen? Some people like, kind of what does that mean on a campus? What are the things we need to understand? So what I use is actually a curriculum of um, about, of tafsir of about 15 verses that talk about what Muslims working in groups need to do. And that tends to be what we start off the year with. It's open to all of the exec boards. I mean, anyone wants to come, but it's specifically for the exec boards of the five different Muslim organizations um, on the Rutgers campus. Um, so that their terminology is all set properly and also their mindsets and some common obstacles that they'd face. They have some language around how to deal with that. And then eventually, once those, the, those verses are, are finished with, which usually takes about a semester, um, we talk about, okay, now what does individual development look like? Uh, when you're involved in um, uh, in in collective Islamic work, what do you need to now personally do? And for that, we go over diseases of the heart, um, and specifically diseases of the heart that can affect students as they're kind of navigating their way through organized Islamic life.
1: I feel like, even in my own experience, a lot of times um, MSAs or student groups can feel really alienated mm-hmm. from um, like the chaplaincy body on campus, or even like local massages. And can you just kind of speak to, I guess, like I guess how that kind of makes the student groups closer to SILRU and how, like, they kind of support each other.
2: Yeah. Um, that's one of the things, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned is we were very afraid of when starting is, uh, I've been in universities before where there's, like, a separate, like, MSA has its own culture and, like, the chaplaincy has its own culture and, like, uh, there's uh, thankfully it's almost never an antagonistic relationship but there is like this weird difference that they might have different mindsets or they might have different goals at the end of the day and one of the ways we wanted to address that is like our programming is here for you so you decide what kind of that programming looks like and we'll guide it of course Um, so that was one of the reasons we took that policy the way that we did. And what we've seen as a result is um, after having done that, um, it allows um, when advice is given from the, the student organizations make awesome decisions and the student organizations sometimes make some, not some awesome decisions. Um, And when that happens, to be able to provide that feedback is great. But it also took that what us having the ability to also say that there will be times that we're going to make mistakes, and a feedback loop is completely open. That you can go ahead and let us know anytime you think we should be doing something differently, and we're totally open to that. Um, And what that looks like is on a practical level is uh, once a year we meet with the exec board of all of the Muslim student organizations. Um, whenever a request comes in for them to, for us to support them in any of their events, we're more than happy to do that. Even if that means dropping some of our programming, we're more than happy to do that because at the end of the day, I'm like, if you guys are going to develop into awesome leaders, that's that that benefits all of us. Um, um, so um, having that, and then also offering classes where students can kind of just come in, um, has really created an environment in which. Um, we actually support that our student organizations should have their separate goals, their own goals that they decide for themselves. But I think it's led to um, them feeling, at least I feel this way, um, I'm hoping they do as well, that like we are here to support them in their initiatives. We're not here with our own like agenda of like, haha, we're here to control student organizations. Or, um, and part of what also helps this is we're not funded by the university. Because I've been in a chaplaincy before, Um, I won't mention at which university, but I was an employee of the university itself. And I had uh, one of the student leaders literally tell me something along the lines of, of course, you would say that because the administration wants us to think that. Um, And though in that case, I don't think it was appropriate at all. I can see where that comes from is at times uh, student organizations should challenge the university administration. Um, and one of the things I've loved about Silru is I've never felt the, because we're not fully funded, we're not funded by the university at all, um, we can challenge the university uh, administration or staff when we feel like they've done something wrong without it uh, uh, turning into like us biting the hands that feed us. Because the hand that feeds us actually is the Muslim community itself. So we're going to serve the community in, 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 in the most appropriate manner that way.
1: I'm just shifting gears slightly, but still talking about community work. Can you just talk a little bit about the work you did with Rohingya Muslims this summer?
2: Yeah, so um, this summer I had the opportunity of uh, going to Bangladesh, uh, specifically Koch's Bazaar, um, and spending Eid, Eid al-Adha, with the Rohingya refugees. Um, those that don't know about like what's going on with the Rohingya Muslim refugees, it's uh, a million... Um, people a million uh, of our Muslim brothers and sisters were kicked out of their homeland of Burma where they've been for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't just like they were kicked off overnight this has been generation after generation like discrimination has increased so first it was they weren't allowed to have government jobs then they weren't allowed to go to college then they weren't allowed to work at all then they were finally kicked out of their homes and residences so it was a lot of social engineering that kind of uh, uh, led to this and I um, right before even going to the Rohingya camps, I actually went and spent a month in Palestine as well. And there were a lot of similarities between those two um, areas. It seems anytime up, like, uh, you want to dehumanize people and like kick them out, there's a, like, a methodology and a process, and it's, it looks the same everywhere. Um, but it is intense in terms of the experience that uh, these refugees had been through. And uh, um, we, I went with an organization called BDASH, and, and their major focus is actually educating a lot of these young, uh, a lot of these like really young kids um, who are who make up close to like 20 or 30 percent of the actual camp. And this is a very dark side of this. But one of the reasons they make up 20 to 30 percent of the camp is, um, of course, when these villages were being burnt down, a lot of the men were killed and the women were um, uh, 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 raped as they were kind of fleeing and uh that's why a lot of the kids that are about the same age and have basically the same birthdays because it all happened in those specific nights um so these there's a huge influx of children who the way they exist currently in those refugee camps is they were the they were just supposed to be housed for a couple of weeks it's been over 3 or 4 years that they've been there and there's no education process for them. There's no jobs or anything. So, B-dash really focuses on educating these uh, kids, most of whom are orphans. Um, and so that when they do, inshallah, make it back, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala return them to a home with dignity. I mean, um, but when they do make it back, they're not so far behind in life already in terms of not being able to read and write, not even being able to have like basic skills or basic responsibilities of even like caring for their own food or helping cook um, these type of lifestyle things. So that uh, BDS is trying to give them at least those skills so that inshallah, when that day comes, whether that's in uh, 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 back to Burma or in another country, uh, that they're somehow, somehow competent. Um, and uh, so we were going, and we were teaching part of it, and distributing things, and a lot of it was also just advocacy work, just understanding uh, the situation so that when we came back, we could talk about it and even uh, push politicians. Um, we had to sit down with a couple of um, uh, lawmakers as well, in terms of like being, no, we've actually been there because one claim is, oh, well, no one knows what's actually happening on the ground. And we've been there, we've seen what's uh, happening and we've seen kind of the motivations of, of these people, as uh, of, of these families. Um, the claim is, oh, they're just bad actors or anything or there's a lot of crime in the camps. There's, I can tell you uh, the conditions I've seen are... Uh, Uh, things we couldn't imagine kind of living in but subhanAllah they're making a life out of it but on a personal level one of the things that I really took away um, I used to read about um, different people's uh, experiences in refugee camps and them writing a post online like oh they gave me more than I could ever give them and I would look at that with an air of like yeah everyone says that but going there like I can't say any words other than those because something I found was significant is uh, as someone who deals with mental health um, on on college campuses and in hospitals before um, generally you can you start being able to tell when mental health is significantly challenged and weirdly enough um, the rate of mental health issues in those camps is probably about the same if not less than the rate of mental health issues on the college campus. And that wouldn't be expected. You'd expect like what they've gone through would significantly destroy their sense of balance or their sense of normal. But no, what I found is um, uh, they subhanAllah they have some sort of resilience to them or they were given some sort of resilience. Um, and this isn't to say that you don't take them out of that scenario. We definitely should. But they had a um, uh, this this quality of kind of persevering, which is amazing to see. And it really kind of um, made me understand almost like the human condition that we're living in, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the ability of kind of um, uh, experiencing certain emotions, and we will experience them, um, regardless of what our risk looks like how we get through our kind of human uh, process will look very, very similar. Um, so, its fun, but that was like an eye opening moment of course it didn't make me want to help or advocate for them any less because of, a, that is not how people should be treated. people deserve dignity um people deserve the right to call a place their home and to have a uh uh the ability of raising their children in a way that they want to to earn it is um to earn things for a living like of, of course these things that people people deserve to have but uh still it it made me appreciate that um We think that material elements are what keep us stabilized. They aren't. Um, They really aren't. The relationships I saw between parents and children, between siblings, um, like uh, a a mom not knowing how to deal with her child kind of acting out. Um, I remember having a conversation with her. Um, because she, they had, I I, don't, I wasn't qualified in any way to comment on her uh, uh, predicament or give any sort of advice. But I remember hearing it. I was like, this sounds very similar to the, the week before when I was on campus and a and a mom was complaining that she that her child doesn't care anything about her. So it was like the the situations are the same. The the relationships are the same. Um, even though the the practical or the uh, the amount of risk that they're dealing with or sustenance they're dealing with is significantly different.
1: Thank you. Um, and the next thing I want to talk about is um, Siluru's new trip this year to Jerusalem, and I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about the goal and what it means to be BDS compliant on a trip like this.
2: <laughs>
1: Sorry, <laughs> a that's that's, that's <laughs> a, no.
2: It's, it's a good question. Um, so, Inshallah, what we're planning on doing in uh, spring break, where this is going to be our first of the annual Slu Jerusalem trip. Um, so, alhamdulillah, three years ago, we started our Umrah trip. So, in January and winter break, we take students to go for Umrah. And now, in spring break, we're going to start taking students to Jerusalem. From my understanding, this is the first time that a university's trip is going to be going, um, uh, to Jerusalem in a, in a guided way. And, uh, it has a couple of goals that are really associated with it. Umrah has it purely you're trying to fulfill a spiritual right. And of course, there's education that goes along the way. Um, with this trip, what we're trying to do is, of course, see Masjid al-Aqsa. There's a hadith of the Prophet that, um that uh, you don't make like a, a pilgrimage or a, 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 a rihla, um, um I don't believe Rihla was the term that's found in the hadith, but you don't make uh, a, a, a journey to any place for a spiritual reason except for three that's to vis- visit Masjid al Haram, Majlid al uh, Prophet um uh, um and uh, Medina, and uh, Al Quds. Um. We're going to eventually have a conversation of helping people understand that Majd al Aqsa is actually Bayt al Maqdis. The entire compound of Aqsa is what we could call Majd al Aqsa. There's no one Majd al Aqsa, there's like seven massages in that compound. Uh, but it's to take students there for that purpose, of course. But this trip's going to be a little bit different. Um, it's to really have them appreciate uh, the relationship that our dean has with the other traditions that exist. So we're going to go there. We're going to see Bethlehem. We're going to see um, uh, uh, the Church of Nativity, the Church of Resurrection, the Holy Sepulchre. Um, we're going to go see the Wailing Wall and try to appreciate um, how integrated our community or how much interaction our community has really had with other communities and how beautiful um, proper interaction looks like specifically when you go to bethlehem and nazareth and you hear about oh when it's christmas all the volunteers are muslim who help us uh through this so that um those that want to have a spiritual experience on that day can so the muslim community helps out and we rely on all the local masajid staff and on vice versa that when it's eid we go to the like hearing this from literally the cardinals um we go and we help the muslims out with with managing the crowds that show up for Aid. And how like beautiful it was. Um, we had we had this older man uh, gentleman who's actually he was the director of a hospital, the only hospital in Palestine that is allowed to do oncology work, um, that's allowed to treat cancer. Um, and uh, his name is Walid, Dr. Walid. And he said something really interesting. He said uh, it wasn't until he was 16 years old that he realized later that Qadr was not a Muslim thing. He's a Christian. He grew up Christian his entire life, but because of how often his community talked about Laylat al-Qadr, he thought it's just it's just a, it's just a Christian thing. It's a thing that all faiths have. He's like, I didn't realize that it was specifically in the last ten nights of Ramadan um, that that would have, like just hearing that and hearing people who are who have just grown up with that, um, I think changes the way we have our relationship with our, our own tradition and changes the narrative we have around um, like the Israel Palestine uh, conflict. Um So, part of this is just to allow people to have uh, an authentic experience of um, what is a place in which Muslim Christians and Jews have had meaningful interactions um, with each other and inshallah we're going to be going to a couple of cities within Palestine as well um, so that they could understand uh, the, the, the culture of course with the cities. Um, uh, an authentically muslim space um, and also one of my personal goals in this is to allow people to understand what farm life looks like because um, palestine has this unique ability that the average person has like gardens um, and like the land is very fertile so they actually grow things and what difference does that make in the way they interact with the land the way that they interact with other people because there are people that uh, cultivate for a living um, so that's the type of stuff that I'm hoping uh, our students get an appreciation for. And of course, going to Masjid al-Aqsa, praying in Majd al-Aqsa, um, and, and really taking in everything that, uh, well, not everything, but some of what uh, Bayt al-Maqdis has to offer for them as well. Um, seeing where the Prophet, الله عليه وسلم ascended uh, to Isra and Mi'raj. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful type of thing. And also, the difference in preservation that's found within uh, uh, Masjid al-Aqsa, or I even said it, within Bayt al-Maqdis, um, rather than the, the two other harams. How Medina and how Mecca have been preserved is very different than how uh, Bait al-Maqdis has been preserved. Um, and kind of explaining some of that away for an intellectual understanding, but also it's a difference of intellectual trends within our spiritual tradition um, that can you can see the physical manifestations of. So I'm I'm super excited, inshallah, um, in, in uh, taking going myself and of course taking the students with me as well. And oh, I forgot to answer the last part of your question yes. was, what does it mean for a trip to be BDS, uh, BDS compliant? That means that when we will be going, uh, we will be uh, um, supporting Palestinian businesses and local Palestinian-run efforts. So the hotels that we will be going in will not be supporting a, the polity that is causing oppression.
1: And that was like a very conscious decision I was sitting on this a part. <laughs> yeah,
2: that was a very conscious decision because we wanted to go to this trip and allow people to have an authentic Muslim experience that they don't feel like they are morally um, somehow uh, sacrificing or uh, supporting a regime that they don't agree with. Um, so that was really important for us. And um, I have to just add this. Um, I want to also teach people how to authentically like be a tourist uh, not just like taking pictures in random places, but like authentically understanding the culture um, of of a uh, of a space that has so much significance to them. So uh, inshallah, part of what that is, is, is not doing harm while you're there. So okay. that's why we're BDS compliant, inshallah.
1: Last question. I just wanted to end on a personal note. Um, I was hoping you could share your Sahara marriage story. It's, it's one of my favorites
2: yeah um so my i'm contemplating how much of this to share i, I will actually share it inshallah um so uh, i i really started appreciating and understanding what is the meant in terms of, like what it gives you um when I made it for something significant. Alhamdulillah, I was raised in a community and I was raised with a company that always encouraged me to do a sahara. And I was someone that did a regu- relatively regularly. I'm talking like um, almost when I'm on campus, when people tell me about a sahara, I can just assume the next thing is going to be if they're asking me how to do a sahara But, you know, I'm thinking about getting married to someone. Um, the story is about marriage, but my general advice there is... Uh, You don't just write a paper. The first paper you write um, isn't your master's thesis. It takes a long time before you get there because it's a methodology that you develop. Istikhara is a methodology. Um, So I was actually already kind of used to the methodology of istikhara because I was, uh, whether to add someone to a team or not for like an organization, what topic to choose for a halaqa. These are things I would actually do istikhara for um, uh, beforehand. But the one that sticks out to me so in my life is the most significant is uh actually when i was uh after i had gotten engaged to my uh, uh to my wife afia and the story actually the preface that's needed is i'm someone who does a lot of research before making any decision um to the point where this laptop that's sitting in front of me i literally read probably 70 to 80 uh laptop reviews from different websites before deciding to get this one um it's a big process for me um, but when it came to actually who I was going to marry, the process moved very, very quickly. I, we had spoken two or three times and only once in person, and in total we had spoken for maybe three hours. Um, and I immediately said yes, two days after um, I had met her for the first time, like met her formally in the, for the first time going going to her house. and. Uh, I had said yes, and I was relatively happy with it. And I had done a sahara but I still made the decision very, very quickly. And then after the fact, I was beating myself up that like, you spend more time deciding on what, what bag to put your things in than you do than you did on, on, <laughs> um, on deciding who's going to, who you're gonna be spending the rest of your life with. Um, so I was really kind of mad at myself and I started just praying a sahara, not really knowing what question to ask. And that's not usually how you're supposed to pray a sahara. Um, but I ended up getting a dream. I know most people like want a dream, but they don't usually get that dream. I got a dream a couple of days later Mm -hmm. in which, um, I was, uh, on, there was a full moon. Um, and don't laugh at me because it sounds, even when I say it out loud, this sounds so like boy bandish, it's weird. Um, but I was in my dream, I was uh, standing on uh, a, a, a beach with black sand and there's a full moon. And like, you could see the waves coming in perfectly. And I was, uh, right next to me was um, my future wife, who I'm married to right now, Alhamdulillah, was Afia wearing an awesome purple hijab. And uh, we were kind of walking together holding hands. And I I was like, this is the dream, this is it. But a few, like literally the day it happened, I started thinking to myself, um, this is confirmation bias. I wanted a dream to confirm the decision I had already made so this is exactly what's going on. This is exactly what, um, uh, what I'm seeing. So I was like, I discounted the uh, results of the Zestakhara. And then a few days later, um, it was confirmed it, something interesting happened. I was talking to a friend of mine. I was living in Connecticut at the moment. He was living in Washington, DC, but we had both grown up in Chicago. I was talking to him uh, on Gchat and he messaged me and um, he asked me just out of the blue, uh, Hey, are you engaged? And at this point, no one knew that I had said yes. I don't even think my siblings fully knew that I had said yes. Um, so I'm not one of those people that like posts on Facebook as soon as I make a decision and please don't be one of those people that does that. Um, but uh, I just played it cool and said, no, but why are you asking? And he goes, you're gonna think I'm weird. And I'm like, I'm not. He's just like, okay, well, I had a dream in which he he said that he was getting out of his car and in front of him was a beach. So he was in the parking lot preceding a beach. It was a full moon and there was black sand on the beach. And he said he saw me from the distance uh, holding hands with a woman in a purple hijab. That's one of those moments where I was immediately like, Jazath for sharing this. I didn't tell him why. I just told him, like it's good to share a good dream, so like uh it, it's it's so meaningful that you shared this, but I have to go right now. Um so I quickly signed off um and then I fell into Sejud. And like in in almost tears I was like, that's that's what I needed. Um my my mind had like intellectualized like confirmation bias so much that like I wasn't willing to accept the results, accept the first dream that I had gotten. What I needed was a dream from someone else. And uh, yeah, to me that's that's istikhara in a nutshell. Is it'll speak to you in a way that is particular to the way you process information. And for me, I didn't trust myself, so it came from someone else
1: sharing that you're very welcome. Story. I love that story. Thank you so much for your time you're and here. all of your words of wisdom and, and for sharing your story. It's not fair. You're
2: very welcome. Um, I'm looking forward to how this turns out
0: inshallah <speaking> <Spanish>